I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. Where two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Welcome back to Book Club. Book Club. Hi, Eve. <laughs> Hi, Kieran. <laughs> How are you doing? You know, I'm doing great. To actually. <laughs> yeah, no, no, nothing else is nothing is really like changed materially in my life, but I'm feeling good. So, how are you? I'm also doing well. It's been warmer. There were two days of sunlight, so holy shit! I know. I'm we're we're getting out of Berlin winter, and I'm very very happy to be on the trajectory to spring. So, I'm also doing very well. Speaking of looking forward to things in the spring, there's a an author here with us whose book comes out soon. Anna, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Anna Gasmarian. My book, Devout, A Memoir of Doubt, comes out March 12th. I'm really proud of myself for remembering that. Good job. Yes, thank you so much. (laughs) You can buy it at Target. That's my favorite place that it's going to be sold because I wrote a lot of it in the Target parking lot. But you can also buy it at your local bookstore. That's Are great. you going to have your lunch party in the Target parking lot? I've actually asked about that. <laughs> and I've also asked about Waffle House. And I think everyone is just really tired of me. I think either would be great. I think Waffle Thank House you. especially would be a great place to do. Yeah, exactly. Just like yeah. reading from the counter or something. Mm-hmm. But it has yeah. to be at like nighttime. Like it has to be yeah, like at 2 a.m. Exactly, like peak <laughs> yeah. Waffle House hours, two yeah. thirty in the morning, at exactly. the bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Those sounds amazing. I would show up for that for sure. Thank you. That would be great. Um, so tell us a little bit. Like we we have a a bunch of really fun things that we want to get to, but tell us a little bit about like the book, what what it's about, why why we're here talking about it today and then we can get into the fun spicy stories. Yeah. And like also why, why you decided to write it now? Yeah. So I started writing the book when I was 18, I'm 31 now. And I kind of wrote the book to wrestle through my evangelical upbringing. And I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 18 and I grew up in a church culture where mental illness was seen as demonic and sinful, and I wanted to wrestle through what it meant to be a person of faith and also mentally ill and how those things can coexist. And I feel like majority of the memoirs about faith are a end with denouncing religion. And that was the hardest thing about se- selling my book is because everyone was like, why the heck are you still religious? Um yeah so I also something that was really important to me was that I wanted the book to not be a book that ends with these really neat and clear answers I wanted it to be a book that recognizes how much of faith involves the unknown and not having certainty and learning to be okay with that ironically I'm still really bad at accepting uncertainty my editor had to yell at me a lot like (laughs) <laughs> Anna, you, you can't just go to these male the, theologians and have them tell you what to believe. Like, you just need to accept that you don't have the answers. So I, I do think I also wrote the book <laughs> to, like, so figure that out. Yeah, yeah. 
he's really great. That's fair. Yeah. So the the book covers what time period? I, you said you started writing it. It, it started when I was diagnosed. Okay. Yeah, it started when I was diagnosed with bipolar, and then it ends with the birth of my daughter. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I got the book deal when I was nine months pregnant, and uh, I, it was a very unconventional process. He was a new editor at Simon and Schuster, and I he, he tweeted his email, and I don't understand why anyone would do that, but whatever. <laughs> tell, um, tell, tell our listeners his name so they can look him up because he's, he's Israel. A yeah, he's a he's special a character. Presence. Yeah, he's all over social media, like very transparent about the publishing industry. And he said in his, he did like a video series of what he wanted in a book, and one of them was exploring subcultures. And so I sent him just a random pitch without even sending him my book. And he emailed me to call him and I did. And he was like, I want your book. I was sitting on the floor, (laughs) nine months pregnant. I couldn't move. And my response was like, are you sure? Because I have a lot of doubt. And he was just like, do you want to do this or not? Like, Oh, I guess I do. I don't know. Um, yeah, so he he had a lot of faith in me from the beginning, and I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, I remember his when he announced that he was getting this position at Simon Schuster. So for those who don't know, like Gadon is like kind of a like New York City fashion and books culture socialite yeah. guy. Like, so you'll see, you know, they'll be like book launches or parties or whatever and you'll see him there in the photos like he's 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 in the scene and so when he got this position you know doing acquisitions and editing books at Simon and Schuster it was kind of this like big deal of like an outsider getting inside in a way and so when he has done these unconventional things about how he's soliciting his authors it's really cool to see you know new people new voices being able to, you know, go around the traditional roots and get published without a lot of the the hoops that everybody else has to jump through. Yeah, so, I mean, there's so much. For you. Yeah, I I mean, like I got the book deal before I even had an agent, which is crazy because I got a lot of rejections from agents, and so I called my friend who's an agent. I was like, hey. I have a book deal. Can you just like sign stuff for me? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Like the hard part is taken care of. Can you just do the thing? Thank you. Just make sure I don't get screwed over. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's so great. Um, Yeah. I'm really, I'm really happy for you that you were able to get that and that this is, this is real and coming into the world so soon. Yeah. I don't really know what to do with it. Um, it's it's a weird I had a little crisis for a while afterwards where I I've worked for this for so long and it's been the center of my life for so long that I keep asking myself what's next mm-hmm. and then I said oh I'm not gonna write anymore but now I have three book drafts and it's it's crazy are you so, feeling good we'll about see. the other projects uh what is it about purity culture what is a novel that involves a narrator who's obsessed with hell? 
just because I want to tell my youth group stories without having to say the real. (laughs) (laughs) That's completely fair. Yeah. And then what, why am I forgetting what the last one's about? Oh, what is about the history of raising children in religion and then grappling with what I want to do with my daughter? And Mm. yeah, it's a, a little existential crisis. All big, big, big topics. Yeah. Yeah. Just some white. It's really awkward at parties or in anything when people ask me what I write about. Oh, yeah. Same. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> people, yep. What do you say? Um, It's really nice when the people who, like, I know for, yeah. for – have known for years ask me this. So, like, if they don't know anything, I'm like, oh, I just write about trauma stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like I just kind of like stutter and stumble into like I it's just it's so yeah it's it's not fun content and I don't want to bring the vibe down I actually yeah. I'll tell this story because this is kind of cute um not to take away from anything you're saying but no, I, please I, was tell at, cute things. I was at a friend's wedding a couple weeks ago and she married a guy who went to my MFA program um, who I didn't know because he went a couple years ahead of me. And she and I went to undergrad together. So we've known each other for like 15 years. And a bunch of other people from grad, from undergrad and my grad school were all there. So it was like a lot of people from like these two very different worlds yeah. all together. It was really cute. People from undergrad kept being like, hey, how's your writing going? How's the book? And I tell them like where it's at. And they were like, does it have a title? And I tell them the title and they'd get so excited. And I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be real. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, it goes over well if they have context for it. And if they don't, I just panic. I've kind of got to a point where I kind of just embrace that I make people very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And and so I don't care anymore. Like, the last party I was at, I didn't know the people. And I handed my psychiatrist number out to, like, three of the women because I needed (laughs) <laughs> they were just like, you're like they were i know a guy. Guy. i know a guy He's gonna yeah i mean there were these so one of the things that i really hate is christian mom culture that's like a whole sub thing that i totally want to write about and half of them need to be on medication oh yeah at least it, yeah minimum. At least yeah yeah minimum. it's a whole thing it's a whole thing like, my daughter is two and a half, and this one woman was like, have you started teaching her about the fruits of the spirit? Absolutely not. What? Do you mean, like, we're just going to go through fruits? fruits of the spirit song. And yeah. She was yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know it. The spirit, I love, joy, peace. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and, like, let's teach our children these songs instead of how to, like, self-regulate. Yeah. Right. And, and I, I get really I wasn't expecting it, but I just get really triggered and weird about hearing really young kids pray. It's Do they so know what awkward. they're doing? Yeah, it's so awkward. awkward. It's, I was at yeah. dinner with a friend and they asked their like five year old to pray and it was weird. And then she was telling me about how like every night her daughter prays for unreached people groups. And I I just I don't understand. Okay, so let's talk, let's talk about this a little bit. So you, I would consider this like a religious trauma memoir. I, yes, is that accurate? Yes. What? How do you feel about like the way 
the church and being in the church as a child impacted your like sense of self when you later realized you had bipolar and were diagnosed with that? I think the hardest part is that I keep thinking I'm done figuring out what traumatized me and then this whole other thing comes up. So I thought for a really long time that the main thing was hell because every night I prayed not to go to hell. And when I was diagnosed with bipolar, I was starting to experience suicidal thoughts. And I went to a Southern Baptist high school and I remember the teacher standing up and saying, anyone who dies by suicide goes to hell. And one of the kids asked, well, my uncle died by suicide. Does that mean he's going to hell? And she was like, yes. And... I, I it's mean, a really Catholic it. belief. I'm surprised that it yeah it jumped jumped over to the Southern Baptist because I hadn't heard that in the evangelical circles. My parents circles. believed that too. It was yeah, and I yeah. I went to a friend's. Her dad died by suicide, and they had a funeral, and it was like they had no idea what to say, and they ended up praying that he would end up being saved. But that really messed with my view of mental illness, and I was. I mean, I joke about it and I shouldn't, but I, I I was suicidal, but also what saved me from actually taking action was, well, if I do this, what if I go to hell? Yes. Wow. And, and, and that really Same. messed me up because one of my therapists was like, oh, so it's kind of like a coping mechanism for you. Like, yeah, yeah but it's really fucked up. And, it makes and everything worse. Like, and yet... <laughs> Yeah, and, and I found a psychiatrist notes, and they were like, uh, she's not at risk because she believes in hell. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I love that for me. Yeah. That needs to be, like, printed and framed somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I think so. We need to embroider this on a pillow. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> yeah, and then I – so I got to a point where I was like, okay, well, hell's not real, and that was fun. And then I, I realized how much purity culture had influenced my sense of self. And, you know, I did the whole waiting until marriage thing. That was fun. And then it was like, okay, so this whole part of me that I was not supposed to take, like, pay attention to is now something that I'm supposed to pay attention to and want. And I don't know what to do with that. And Yeah, that zero to yeah. 60 thing is yeah. real rough. Yeah. And... You know, I was taught that, like, I'm supposed to do whatever a man wants. It's not about me. And those are still things that I feel really guilty about. And I went to a treatment center after I wrote my book. And a large part of that was writing the book was really traumatizing for me. And I wasn't expected to be as triggered as I was. And Mm -hmm. it was funny because I met with a psychiatrist the first time. And he was like, so it says in your file that you have... PTSD, how long have you had that? And I looked at him like, no one's told me that I have PTSD. <laughs> and it was really interesting though, because while oh my I was God, there, that is sorry. I just no, the number yeah. of times I have people in my universe who like get diagnosed with PTSD and then it they tell me and I'm like, wait, you didn't know? Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> and I know this is stupid oh, and, it's so and rough. Unfair. Yeah. But I I when they told me I was just kind of like, but I don't deserve to have that. Uh, because I think, I think something that's really hard for me is that I, I still consider myself a person of faith and I've ha- honestly had to distance myself from a lot of people of faith because their response is like, you know, why don't you just move on? Or like, why don't you just embrace church now? Why, like, why are you so living in the past? Why are you living in 
Uh, and it's like because these messages. So just so move really on. Like, not not. Yeah, they're, they're not. They're not suggesting that you move on from church and like bail. No, they're, they're suggesting they're just that like, you like move on from your mental health issues that are ex- right. extremely real right. and present. Right, okay. and it's like okay, so I move on to focusing on how problematic white evangelicalism. Like what? Right. What am I going to move <laughs> on to? Because I find religion in America very problematic right now. So. Do I focus on the problematic nature of religion in the past or in the present? Which one do you want? And their all answer of, is neither. They just all of the yeah, above. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is great. Yeah. Okay, so backing up a little bit, I want to ask about like what the process of writing the book like was for yeah. you. But like you two were talking about suicidality and hell. Karen, what was your your experience like there? Because oh, not drop that note. Yeah. So. uh Speaking of purity culture, back in the day when I was courting and then when I was rudely broken up, I was like, you know, typical like eldest daughter of a large family having to run the household kind of like thing and suddenly like was not allowed to have any contact with my best friend who I had been Recording for like a year who my parents had like tried to marry me off to before I was 18 because I needed to get started on the baby making early and neither of us wanted that so they were like okay well since you're not you know engaged at 17 and a half um we're we obviously like this isn't God's plan so you can't speak to each other or see each other ever again and so I like was already really depressed but I didn't I thought I just didn't have enough faith because I also grew up in that same like every illness is a sin issue like mm-hmm. not even just mental illness but like every kind like a cold a canker sore the flu whatever sin issue somehow some way it's like you know your fault mm-hmm. so I was really depressed and like oh I'm just like having this faith crisis but I was also having like a lot of suicidal ideation and because I grew up in the south with gun loving parents I had a gun and I knew where it was and I knew how to use it and I knew how to use mm. it safely and I knew where I was gonna go but the thing that that like kept you know stopping me from taking action was you know two things one I always I had a friend that I could call when I like felt that way which not a lot of people have but like I yeah. did and it he saved my life many many times who also reminded me that like one, you know, reminded me because this isn't like a standard Protestant belief. This is a weird, like my parents didn't believe in once saved, always saved. So they were like, you know, if you commit suicide, then that's murder and you're going to hell. Like you're, you're lost of your salvation. And my friend also had this like viewpoint. So I was reminded of that, but also that like, if I did kill myself, then he would come find me and kill me again. So it was <laughs> <laughs> so that, not only would I go to hell, but I would also be murdered by my other friend for for doing it. I haven't thought about this in so long. Sorry. I'm just like realizing that like my theological teaching on this was not that suicide was murder, but it was destroying the image of God. Interesting, and, and that uh. was, and that was, it was an act of desecration, and that's why yeah. it was offensive to God. The interesting thing to me about Christianity is, and this makes people mad when I say this, like I think Jesus was suicidal at multiple times in yeah. the Bible. Yes, <laughs> yes, for sure. Who forty would days just in, wandering that? in the desert? Yeah, there were yeah. times. So he he was fine. He was totally fine. Yeah, he was fine. 
He was sweating blood. Yeah, totally, totally fine, normal, not mentally anguished thing to do. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there's only one circumstance that we know of where people sweat blood, and it's totally when everything is chill. <laughs> and, you're, and you're living your best life. Well, and, <laughs> and also, if you want to like take it all the way, again, people are going to be so pissed. But like, if he was all powerful, he could have stopped the crucifixion, yeah, and prevented right, yeah. all of that. And so, by going along with it, that was functionally assisted suicide. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that conclusion of, of believing that God is not all powerful has really saved me because. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's so many issues that I've always had with God and, and getting to the conclusion, well, if this is true about God, then God must be cruel and God must be angry because if, if these things are true, God can't be love. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in order to say that God is love, you have to get to the point of believing that God is not all powerful. Hmm. So that was my spiral last year. So yeah, that makes what, sense. What about? I mean, obviously everything, but what about the book was like triggering for you to get into and to revisit? A lot of things. I there there was a relationship that, that I talked very briefly about uh, where I was really in love with him, and I was taught that men are the leader in relationships and consent was never taught to me. So it was like men set the boundaries and you are supposed to go along with them and it doesn't matter what you think. And I, oh my gosh, have you seen the movie eighth grade? No. Yes. Yeah. You know, the car scene where she's in the car. Yeah. Yeah. She's in this, she's in the car and this guy is just like pressuring her to do all this shit and it's like the tension and the the way they capture that moment is so beautiful. I mean, it's it's terrible, but she ends up not going along with it. But for me, it was like, okay, I feel uncomfortable and I'm telling you no, but you keep pressuring me. And the fact that you're a Christian guy means that I have to go along with this. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that really shaped my view of men and power dynamics. Mm-hmm. And... The result was that I was told that my depression was a distraction for this guy and I had to leave the church because I was causing him to sin. And that was like the precursor to my diagnosis. And I often wonder like if that hadn't happened, would I even have like had gone down that rabbit hole? Would I even have what I have? And that's really hard for me to grapple with. And I I also just recognized how much I was traumatized about my own sexuality. Like, there was a point where I tried to push things farther in a physical relationship with a guy. And then he basically shamed me and said that I was a bad person and told everybody that I was a Mm. slut. Which is funny in retrospect (laughs) because of how, like... I had all these rules. I was like, I can't kiss a guy until I've dated them for three months. And obviously that ended yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. of relationships. So the fact that like there were rumors going around me about being a slut was like the worst thing that could happen to me in my head. Right. And, you, you, like yeah. it wasn't that you were a slut because you were acting on it, but that you had a sex drive and you were yeah. paying attention to it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
and so that was really hard for me and also I think what was really difficult for me is I was writing this book postpartum and I was having a mental crisis in real time. And when I started this book and before having my daughter, I was in a really stable place and thought, okay, so I got everything under control. I've got the mental illness figured out. I've got my medications figured out. And so the worst is over. And so I was writing this narrative about <laughs> No one is prepared nope. for postpartum hormones. No. Oh no. my God. No, and and I had been doing ketamine therapy. I'd been doing all these things, and then at postpartum, I like I wasn't able to do those things pregnant, and so I just crashed. And oh, yeah. I I had to write a book about recovery while having a crisis in real time, and I didn't know is this going to end up worse than what happened mm-hmm. in the book, and it ended up doing that. Like my mental health was even worse than the period I'm talking about, and so I felt like this fraud because I was like, I'm, I'm writing this book. Uh, there's hope in it, but I have absolutely no hope in my life right now. Mm-hmm. And that tension was just really hard for me to grapple with. Did you find that despite all that, there were like moments where you like revisited things and you were able to like extend new kindness to your former self, your earlier self, because you had lived through more? Yeah, I, I do think that writing in general has made me extend self-compassion because I I used to just completely hide my upbringing to people because I was really embarrassed of it for multiple reasons. And I think once I started working with a therapist that was like, do you see that all of the beliefs you had were because you were indoctrinated and this was religious abuse and (laughs) you knew nothing different. And I think I've been able to extend grace for that. And I feel like the more I write about it, the more I talk about it with people, the more I'm able to accept those parts of myself without shame or guilt and acknowledge that I'm not the same person. So, okay, this is the side mm-hmm. story. So go for it. Yes. So there was this situation in high school where there was a guy I found out who was drinking alcohol. And obviously that's the worst thing you can do. Especially because this wow. is a Baptist universe. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the, that leads to dancing. That's awful. I, I mean, my principal was kicked out for drinking a glass of wine with his wife. Because one of the yeah. students found him and took a picture of it. And the kid that found him had been kicked out for drinking. So it was like this beautiful Oh, my scene. God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, oh, it was man. amazing. Oh, yeah. the scandal. Yeah. And so my friend had been drinking. And I, with my Christian you know, viewpoint, was like, okay, the best thing and the most loving thing that I could do is to tell somebody in authority. On them. Yep. I'm worried about how he's living his life and he's not living a life of faith. And so I told on him and he ended up getting kicked out of school and I felt so guilty. And so while writing this book, because in retrospect, I, I didn't own up to it. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Cause I was so ashamed. And so I mm-hmm. reached out to him and was like, I am so sorry. And he was like, you mm-hmm. are the most self-righteous person that I have ever met and you haven't changed and you're not sorry. And and then when my book was announced, he commented me and was like, I hope you get a bunch of money to finally get the attention that you've always wanted. And Wow. Yeah. And, and if that would have happened a few years ago, I would have completely spiraled and, spiraled and cried and been like, I am a terrible person. But I know that I am not the same person that I was when mm-hmm. I was 16. Thank God. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of just able to let that go and also just laugh at it that like, 
buddy, that was so long ago. And if you're really still holding that grudge, I'm sorry. One of the things he also said was like, you're going to be alone for the rest of your life and be a nun in a foreign country. And <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. Don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then I ran into him when I was with my daughter and it was this like pretty woman moment. He also joined my gym for a temporary second. And <laughs> Bunny, why and is I, he obsessed with you? Yeah, why is he obsessed with me? He moved to my town. He goes to my gym. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was into me. And then I rejected him because I was like, you're not a strong Christian. So. <laughs> like, I I get the, like, you're the most self-righteous person I've ever met. Like, comment. Like, I can think of moments like that, too, where I was so rigid. And yeah. so insistent on following the rules because, again, threat of hell and all that stuff. Just yeah. like I was totally bought in and I was a dick to people. And yeah. and it's really like liberating to be able to be like, wow, that sucked and I was an asshole. Yeah. It sucks that he's not able to like join you on the other side of that yeah. with the perspective you've gotten. But it's really great that you're able to like see that and like revisit that and yeah. like understand you know and I think it's really, why it's really you were complicated. There. yeah but like in my head and, and, and in my heart I was doing the most loving thing that I could do for someone and I think right in my all of my writing it's like I want to explore the inner logic of evangelicalism where it's a lot more complicated than it just being really problematic because in these people's minds they are doing the best that they can Mm -hmm. and they don't know anything different. And I think that has made me have a lot more compassion for people in my family and my friends that are still in that world of like, yes, I know and recognize that these things are very deeply hurtful and they Mm -hmm. are problematic for so many reasons. And I'm angry, but at the same time I recognize where they're coming from and I don't want to be as close minded as they are. It doesn't like, make the impact less complicated no but no. but the the but the context that they come to causing that harm is really important to understand yeah mm-hmm. yeah 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 the being shitty out of like a like moral obligation that this is the only way that you can like show love to someone is mm-hmm. so hard it's i have recently come back into contact with my parents and they have been really chill about stuff to my face, but I also know like their theology and like what, like what the background noise is there Mm -hmm. and some of the things that they're like trying to accomplish. And so holding space for like being removed and being like agnostic, but still very much like living in the most loving way that I can imagine and understanding that like they don't know like they literally do not know how to love me in the way that I deserve to be loved in the way that I should be loved but they are trying to do an approximation and I'm at the point now after seven years of therapy that I can like kind of hold the tensions of like this is not necessarily how I I receive love but I see that you're trying and I want to acknowledge that you're trying while also being firm in the like here is how these things hurt me (laughs) kind of like balancing that boundary because 
I have siblings at home that I'm like, here is a bridge. <laughs> let me let me lay the bridge for you and mm-hmm. be sort of like in this position of like all of these beliefs hurt and crushed me and like I literally had to escape in order to live my life. But I see that like there is also hurt and pain there and the way that you're trying to assuage that guilt or whatever or like make amends for that is something that you're trying to do and i appreciate the effort (laughs) (laughs) i i can really identify with that and i think for me it came with a lot of grief of i had this image of the parents that i wanted and i had this image of the way i wanted to be supported yeah and then having to accept like this isn't possible and i have to accept them how they are and i have to accept that I can't change them. And that took a lot of work because I was really sat on like, okay, I'm going to argue with them about all these theological things. I'm going to change their mind, but then just be like, I can't. And I I have to accept them. And also I have to accept that like, it's okay who I am. And I I still have this chip on my shoulder of like, what if I'm disappointing them? Like, what if I'm not a good daughter? And I think that really comes from my theological background of like, honor your parents. Right. Mm -hmm. And And so there are times where I do spiral a little. I'm like, oh my gosh, they have this universalist liberal daughter now. And what if I'm wrong about everything? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Worst thing that you could have your child do, right? So bad. Tattoos, like what's going on? (laughs) It It is really nice. It seems like they've been supportive of your mental health stuff. Yeah, yeah. Just generally, like which I think is like a really remarkable thing. Yeah, I I am really lucky in that regard. And they have supported me so much in getting the treatment that I needed. And I I wouldn't be where I am without them. Yeah, not to diminish all the other stuff that's very complicated, obviously. But I think it's like really, like, it's really nice. It's just something I don't see a lot of. Right, yeah. And and I was the one that, like, I scheduled the psychiatrist appointment. I was the one that bridged the gap and left my evangelical background to embrace science and embrace Mm -hmm. secular psychology and even in doing that they embraced all of it and i'm really lucky for that that speaks volumes to their willingness to like grow and learn and like you know maybe they don't get all these other things yet and they're not on the same page as you in all these other ways but like because they're willing to go there. I feel like that that's promising for all the other stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. One of the things that I really appreciated in the book was just like how open you were about what being diagnosed was like and like what treatment was like. And that's something that like, I don't see a lot in memoirs is is just sort of like especially sort of religious trauma memoirs which is the brutal openness of like this is what it was like to be diagnosed with this condition so i wanted to talk to like touch on a couple of things one is super fun because we were talking about this before um ketamine what is that treatment like and like if you were going to talk about it to someone who is also dealing with like bipolar that's really hard to treat is what would you tell them to know about going in and then I can tell you my fun k-hole story I'm so excited to hear your fun story (laughs) so I had no frame of reference because I had 
no experience with drugs. And so like, I, I didn't know what it was like to be, I'm like, is this, is this being high? <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I had tried like 30 medicines by the time I started treatment and I was going to like a center that was, hadn't even been open yet, but they, they saw that my depression was severe enough that I needed it. And I did, I started out with IV ketamine for the first few years and that involves getting an IV and usually takes an hour and you, yes, you are very high and different centers do different things. Some of them include therapy. Some of them include just letting you watch Netflix or listen to music, sit in the dark. It's really whatever you want. The first few years, I just watched The Office and I it's like a good show to entire, watch. Yes, I have an entire photo album of me noticing like small details of the show that I hadn't seen before, like the Wegman's cereal. And, and there were moments where I was like working on my book or working on an essay, and then I would notice something and it felt like this revelatory thing. And I, I honestly didn't have much hope for ketamine, and you have to build up your tolerance. So the first I had to do like treatment every day for I think two weeks, and the, in the beginning, like they do tests where you have to measure your suicidality. And by the third treatment, like the third day, all of my suicidal thoughts had disappeared, hmm. and I didn't even know what. I mean, I was googling like, what do normal people think about when they're not thinking about different ways to die, and. <laughs> <laughs> It was this. Oh really, my god! Yeah, it, it was so really many, so many things about leaving fundamentalism and like figuring out your mental health have been that that conversation. Yeah, of like, wait, you you don't you don't think about this. Oh, right. right. Oh, that's not normal. Oh, oh, okay. Okay, cool. So, what do you think about? And right. if you're not spiraling all the time, like, what do? You, I mean, no I wonder you get so much that. shit done. What happens yeah. in your brain? What do you mean it gets quiet when you go to bed? I do not what, understand. What do you mean I've been on hard mode? Yeah. But it was this really complicated thing because I still don't know how to – like I'm in a very, very good place, probably the best place I've been in in like 10 years. And it's this really hard thing for me to embrace because when you've been depressed for so long, like my bipolar usually involves like years of depression. And when you've been depressed for that long, it becomes a safety net because mm – -hmm. All of your emotions are dull. There's no lower place for you to really go. You you aren't recognizing the fleeting nature of emotions because it just feels like this dark hole. And it's more comfortable, honestly. Like, and I, like I notice if you've got anxiety, if it, it feels very much more rational. And so like if you're yes. not experiencing that, it feels it, it induces panic because it's like, wait, am I not like what should I be wrong? worried about that I'm not yeah, worried yeah, about? Yeah, right. Exactly. What am I missing? Yeah. And then there's the like component where when I was evangelical, I completely ignored pain and suffering. And what made me recognize and acknowledge that life is painful and pain is often how I connect with other people was being diagnosed with mental illness. And so now that I'm in a good place, it's like, I don't want to forget the pain. I don't want to lose what connects me to other people and makes me feel things very differently. And so it's like this balancing act of being feeling good is almost triggering for me because it brings me back to feeling evangelical. And so I'm having to remind myself like I can feel good and also be in touch with my emotions and also honor pain. It doesn't mean that I'm completely shut off from the reality of the world. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, can I yeah. just like pause here for a second? There's actually the what the one page I had flagged to read from talks okay. about this because you you're talking. It's a uh, page one hundred seven. You're talking about feeling sick and nauseated because you're happy and like you don't know how to tolerate happiness. And I was going to ask you if you've, if that's gotten easier. I think I'm not afraid to experience it anymore because the biggest thing for me when I started feeling it was spiraling out over when is this going to end and when this ends and I hit a new low, am I going to be able to handle it? And it happiness makes me feel really out of control and I love being in control, even though it's all an illusion. And so when I'm depressed, I feel in control of my life. And I do think it's gotten easier as I've learned to cope with losses and believe that I can be more resilient than I often think I am. That makes sense. I have also also felt that way, like just when some big anxiety just isn't there anymore, there's immediate panic. When things are going well for me, yeah. my anxiety increases and I'm like, yeah. what? And it's just, it's because trauma responses in the yeah. brain are like, you know, this new thing is scary and like growing up a good time always meant that like another shoe was going to drop. And so it was anything good became like my body physically recognizes like good progress as Mm -hmm. danger. And it has taken years and it's like, this is an ongoing issue, like to trust that like sometimes stuff can just be good. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) It it doesn't mean something bad. I I also struggle with like, I try to per- I try to prepare myself for the worst outcomes possible. And mm-hmm. that prevents me from being present and being proud of myself and being excited. Like with my book, I can give you 20 examples of worst case scenarios that I've thought through. And I honestly haven't felt that excited or proud of myself for anything because it's like I'm trying to prepare myself for when the next shoe drops. Mm-hmm. So basically I'm the queen of catastrophic thinking because it's like, and it is a coping mechanism because, because like subconsciously, I'm like I need to prepare so that mm-hmm. I don't get depressed again. It feels realistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then when something bad happens, I'm like, okay, I caught this, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm prepared, and I had a and plan <laughs> in this notebook here. I know yeah. exactly what to do. Yes, I know exactly what to do. Here is how I cope. I like, already I'd rather talked be... about this with my therapist. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, but I'd rather be surprised that things are going well than disappointed that they go bad. Yeah. Yeah. But it's probably not healthy. (laughs) It's probably not healthy, but I relate to that deeply also. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's something that like continually is a piece of like my therapy sessions is just sort of like, you know, what if it doesn't work out? My therapist is like, okay, but like, sure. But what if it does? And then I'm like, then I get quiet and I'm like, oh, well, I don't know. Um, yes. So back to ketamine, though. Um, has it helped you? Do you do you feel like it's been a useful tool? <coughs> Sorry. Um, yes. I. It was weird because postpartum, it didn't work for me. And now two years out, I'm back on it and it's working and I'm doing – a different type of ketamine where it involves therapy. And so the person is actually walking through my experiences and Mm. 
I, so I did session. Yeah. So I, I, I do ketamine. I also do TMS, which is basically this magnet that is on your brain and it Mm -hmm. feels like you're getting a tattoo. So I started doing that while I was in a treatment center a few months ago. And so those together are awesome. But the ketamine is weird for me because I have these like weird spiritual experiences in my last session. In my last session, I was like, "There's not a god," and then twenty minutes later, I'm like, "There is a god." And then <laughs> it, was, it was this. There was a quote, and I was like, "Oh, holy shit, that's brilliant!" It was like, "What do you do when you believe in something that you don't want to believe and you can't let it go?" And that's very much how I relate to spirituality. Is like. Mm-hmm. There's a huge part of me that is like, if I just walked away completely, my life would be so much easier, but mm-hmm. I can't walk away and I can't explain to people why. Because uh, I'm, I'm friends with like all the atheists now because it's easier and I don't have to like deal with them saying <laughs> Bible shit to me. But they're always like, how does this like making you a better person? How is this serving you? Like, what comfort does this provide you? And I don't think faith provides me any of that anymore. And I also wanted that to be in the book of like, yeah, I don't think that faith and religion makes your life any easier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm going to tell my K-hole story yeah. because I've been, I've been teasing it and I, Eva, I apparently hadn't told about this until today. Um, I have like a very like, vague memory of you telling me that you'd done it but i didn't remember this the actual story of the events yeah so uh, like those big if you haven't done drugs before kids um those big like kind of existential realizations like are part of the ketamine trip i think just like Um, any hallucinogen yeah and so for me have you seen hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy oh hell yeah or red okay so you know the improbability drive yeah. And you know when, like, everyone turns to yarn? Yes. Yes. Okay. My trip was like that. So yeah. I'm, like, sitting here on my friend's couch, and, like, it was the first time I'd done ketamine, and I just, like, we were watching some, like, Twitch stream of, like, GTA Five or something. And my partner and my friend are like having a conversation. They're also tripping, but I'm like on a different plane than they are. And I just like suddenly feel like I am everything and everything is me. And like all of my molecules, like I am part of the walls. I am part of the chair. Like I am just like, I have never felt that present in a moment in my entire life. I was just like, everything just like suddenly snapped. And I was like, wow, this is like existing. Like just everything is connected. Everything is together. And then I got- Dr. Brown is all in one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I got really nauseous. And like, I've had this like- trauma that I didn't realize that I had because growing up, I always got like car sick on trips. So whenever I get like nauseous and have to like vomit in front of people, it's always, always, always coupled with like this huge, just like sense of shame. And I'm like, I'm ruining everything and I'm ruining the night and I'm ruining people's like time and I'm grossing people out and no one's going to want to be friends with me anymore. And like all this like stuff. And so like my friend like runs and gets a bowl and I'm like puking and in my brain, it's like the yarn scene. It's It was so surreal. I was like, why is this yarn? Um, 
it was not yarn. But at that moment, it was like that trauma just like got booped on the nose. And it was like, oh, no, that's actually OK. Like, no one hates you for for getting sick and like coming out of a K-hole. And like, this is no one has actually ever hated you for getting sick, like and having to take care of you for it because people love you. And it was just like this weird moment of clarity that like, I don't feel that same level of shame anymore if I like yeah. get around people. And I, I I went to therapy the next week, like, oh my God, I just had this experience where like <laughs> suddenly this trauma got booped on the nose and everything was okay and no one hated me. And also I was like at one with the universe for like a split second. And then my therapist is like, had just started going to training to be like, to to use psychedelics like mushrooms and yeah. ketamine and like that kind of therapy so it was this great moment of like bonding with my therapist over this like experience that I had I love on- this for you <laughs> and I was like okay cool so that's good to know and I had no idea like going in obviously like what it was going to be like but I was just like I am super present and now I don't feel bad about myself anymore so yeah. that's amazing that's a great story thank you for that <laughs> that that's my one and only yeah we should do academy together sometime <laughs> i'd love that um I'll- my last question sort of on this topic but kind of zooming out and broader because i got diagnosed with fibromyalgia in 2019 which is like also a, a great fun lifelong illness that yeah, you get to yeah. have like what advice or like what was helpful for you in like kind of coping with the fact that like now you have this thing that you have to manage for the rest of your life. I think the hardest part for me was like, I was diagnosed at such an early age that I had no frame of reference of what my life was capable of being. And so I feel like the longer I'm alive and I see the life that I've created, the more I believe that bipolar disorder is just a piece of my story and it's not everything. And I think that's really hard Mm -hmm. to believe when you are forced to spend so much time and money on getting better. It -hmm. can like be very easy to make that the center of your life. And that was the way it was for me for many years. And I think the more I see it as just a component and the more I embrace community and embrace people and acknowledge that like, okay, this isn't this thing that everyone around me is putting up with. Because that's how I used to think it. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. so these people have to tolerate that I have bipolar disorder. And I like put off telling them because I'm like, I'm too much for them. And everything that I'm experiencing is going to cause them to run away. And I think that also has to do with my experiences as a, as a woman and feeling too much. And so mm-hmm. I, I do think that it's gotten a lot easier and – I I also think it's helped me to recognize what it's added to my life because mm-hmm. for so long I viewed it as this thing that I needed to overcome and that I would get to this point of not having to face it anymore. But I do think that especially with depression, it's made me have a much deeper empathy and understanding for people and I'm able to be there for people in ways that I couldn't before. And I can identify with people easier. And I think that I'm able to create safe places for people to explore parts of themselves that are often afraid to explore. Like I joke that 
every time I hang out with someone for a first for the first time, they're gonna just tell me all their traumas. <laughs> I'm just really open about it. And that happened like the other week. I was really scared. I was like, I don't know if these people are too happy for me. And then like within the first 10 minutes, they're telling me about their experiences with therapy. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Back to the conversation about what I write about. It's really wild when I actually tell people. Yeah. They just like they they lose their shit. And then now I know everything. Yes. Yes. But I sort of love it. Mm hmm. Because I don't do well with small talk and I don't really care about the weather or any of this other shit. And so just tell me all your traumas, please. Is this a neurodivergent <laughs> yes. thing or yeah, a yeah. codependent oversharing thing? Yeah, but right. somewhere in the between, but like it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I had to get to a point where I was like not carrying people's pain and, you know, codependency is oh, fine. Yeah. But when I, once I got over that, I was just like, okay, like they're fine. They're resilient. They'll be okay. They don't need me. Is mm-hmm. like, okay, I can listen to these things and like walk away without being re-traumatized. Yeah, yeah. It's just like we resonate with each other and that's fine. That's all it yeah. is. Yeah, that's fine. But we're not going to like do the whole trauma bonding shit. <laughs> yeah, over over New Year's I was at a conference in Hamburg and there is like this tea lounge as part of the event. It's like a space you can just go and hang out. I was like hanging out with some people and – as I do, I first had to educate every European about like Christian dominionism in the US and like what that looks like and like why Trump got elected and like everything that I do. And then at some Everyone's point- Everyone's like, are you guys okay over there? And you're like, no. Not even a little bit at all, no. Um, but then like we start talking about like ADHD and like trauma. And so I, I'm sitting there until like three in the morning- telling someone, no, actually you should go to therapy and having like me and like two other people are talking to this one person who's like, "Hmm, I've been thinking about therapy, but I don't know if it would be helpful. And we're like, you have trauma, baby, get yourself a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) And it it was like, had never like, did not know these people at all. It was just like random, like Uh just sitting there for several hours, just like, oh yeah, no, you had that experience. No, that's the ADHD. Yeah, no, that's trauma, honey. Have you considered talking to someone and becoming medicated? Because let me tell you. (laughs) I literally just responded to someone's like oversharing email the other day with, have you considered neurofeedback? (laughs) (laughs) There are things out there that will help for these things. I also think it's funny how many people apologize to me. They're like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm unhinged or sorry. I'm such a mess. I'm just kind of like, what? Like if that, if that's your version of being a mess or too much or whatever, like you're doing pretty well. I just don't get faced by anything anymore. And knowing that is a really good thing to like hold on to when you or New York yeah. or whoever is yeah, feeling it's like, me a lot. Uh, yeah, like, it's like, it's like, okay, but I wouldn't have a problem with someone feeling this yeah. way around mm-hmm. me. So like, it's fine. I'm, yeah. I'm not a burden. Yeah. I mean, I get really annoyed when my therapist is like, Hey, if you were, how would you react to a friend if they said this? I'm just like, shut the fuck oh, up. It's so but rude also, when they do like, that. True. But in the moment, right. I'm just like, fuck you. I don't want to deal with this. But then later down the road, I'm like, okay, fine. You were right. Whatever. Yep. Yeah. 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 Well, one thing that my best friend who's actually a therapist now likes to remind me of is that there are no special rules for me. Like if other people are allowed to have their feelings and their illnesses and their problems and their whatever the fuck, like I am also. And every time they remind me of that, I'm like, rude, but also you're right. (laughs) I just bully my friends. I'm just like, 
you know, I'm mad at you for treating my my friend, you, badly. So, like, stop it or I'm going to come and fight you. Which is also extremely yeah. effective. Like, threats <laughs> from friends to treat yourself better is, like, it's 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 weirdly, weirdly useful. I'm just like, Kieran, why are you abusing my friend Kieran? Be nice yeah. to Kieran. Kieran's my friend. <laughs> like, wow, rude of you to call me out for being mean to myself. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why would you do that? <laughs> it's yeah. so hard for me because, like, Self-deprecating humor is always my coping mechanism. And my friends will call me out on it now and be like, Anna, stop. No, I don't want to stop. <laughs> this is my coping mechanism. I got taught about hell way too young. This is what I deal deal use to cope with it now. Like, let me have my thing. It's this fine. is my emotional support my coping mechanism. Yeah. <laughs> Anna, stop hating yourself. Shut up. <laughs> Um, are there any other things you want to talk about or tell people about your book uh, they should know before they get into it? Uh, okay, so one thing that was like really hard for me was that it is a little Jesus-y in the sense that I I do include scripture in my book. So if people aren't into that, just go get another memoir. But the reason that I included that just skip those is- sections. Yeah, yeah, just skip the Jesus shit, go to the other stuff. But the reason I included that is because I wanted to show how growing up in religion has affected me and that, you know, most people think normally. But for me, when something happens, my immediate thought goes to like a, a verse or a story. And I honestly don't read my Bible anymore. But the impact of spiritual trauma on me is that I have all these associations and it's how I have interpreted invi- events in my life. And I got in this huge argument with my editor at one point because he it's wanted your vocabulary. Write- it's like your, yeah, your metaphorical yeah. vocabulary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and my editor got in this fight with me where he was like, I want the stories to be in past tense. And I'm like, but in my head, they're in present tense. Like these people are like interacting with me. And so I wanted to have that. And I didn't want it to be a book where it was like, these stories have like helped me and and now I'm better. It's more of like, no, this is how I'm haunted. And this mm-hmm. is, this is why I responded to the things that they, the way that I did. And so that was really important to me. And it was also important to me that like, I wanted to write a book that dealt with religion without making people feel like they had to adapt my own beliefs. And yeah. I got like super paranoid. I'm like, they're gonna put this in the Christian, the Christian section in bookstores, and that's my worst fear. That's one of my <laughs> catastrophic thoughts. Is like, please do not put me in the Jesus books. Like, please do not I look at the cover. It's not. It doesn't look like a Jesus book. And uh, there's not crosses on it. There's not crosses. It's like a broken church. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. My parents saw it. They're like, what? What's going on? <laughs> what? What are you trying to say? But <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> yeah what are you trying to say yeah mm-hmm. but it is some dark shit so like eat a burger like go to waffle house do something fun eat all the food really read it while at waffle house yeah yeah preferably yeah or like a graveyard that would be fine i feel like oh yes i want to ask you this because i see your instagram stories a lot and you talk about music a lot if you want people to listen to the music that you're wrote this book to what would you tell them to go listen to? oh hell yeah so i am obsessed with sufjan stevens like i'm determined to give him my book because he's the reason that i went to uh, a college in michigan because i found out he went there and i think he is really interesting because the way he engages with faith is very literary 
and complicated and he has a secular audience and half the time you're like, is he talking about a boy or is he talking about God? And I think it's fucking beautiful. Yeah. Cause it's like, he's like, go like the way he defines love, the way he defines intimacy and vulnerability is so complicated and beautiful. And so I, I listened to a lot of his music and the way he talks about mental health, the way he engages with his questions and doubts is really beautiful. And that really inspired me. And also Julian Baker is fucking amazing. Uh, She's queer and talks a lot about that in her music. And she's also has religious OCD, which is something that I have. And yeah, I was going to ask you to unpack that. We talked about yeah, that a little bit. Religious DMs, OCD. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So I got diagnosed with that after I had my daughter, I had increased OCD symptoms. And for me that manifest as, I mean, a lot of it is religious guilt where I'll, be attracted to someone or something will happen. And I'm like, I I just completely spin out. And I, it's like my brain falls back into the thought patterns of my youth and I can't stop it. And rationally I'll try to talk myself out of it, but I can't, and I can't reason with it. And it's really complicated because I'll get super fixated. I do it a lot with my daughter where Mm -hmm. Purity culture or something, and I'll be like, okay, what am I going to teach her about this? What am I going to teach her about this? And then I'll have to go on these research dives or start interviewing people or something because I'm like, I have to get this question out of my head. Mm-hmm. And it's this, it's honestly harder for me right now to deal with the OCD than it is to deal with my bipolar disorder because I don't know anymore which thoughts are mine and which are the OCD. And that's mm-hmm. a really scary yeah. thing for me to grapple with is are these things my rational mind or are these things a sickness? And I think it's really complicated because the way in which we process the world and the way in which we experience faith is through our minds. And if I can't trust that, what can I trust? Right. Yeah. And I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to point this out because I think this is something that I had only recently started hearing people talk about. And I think it's probably really important that our listeners know that this is a thing that exists and, you know, it's a, it's important to be able to, get help if you can't distinguish between intrusive thoughts and yourself. Yeah. Something that's really helped me is every day I I get a journal out and I write six pages of intrusive thoughts that I'm having and then I just tear them up. So Mm. I'm like dealing with them and then I just let it go. Mm. And, and I think a big thing for me too is like accepting that I'm not my thoughts, which is a very Mm. basic concept. But for me growing up, it was like, your thoughts are how God communicates with you. Well, you have your to hold everything that captive, right? Yeah. yeah and I mean, every thought Bringing your mind under control to honor yeah. God is like a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I got really paranoid about like, what did these thoughts say about me? Do these make right. me a bad person? And it was heightened after having my daughter because like, I would be like, I don't like this. Or, you know, I'm not, I'm not enjoying this. And I'm like, what does this say about me? What does this say about me as a mom? And Thoughts are supposed to be this fleeting thing. And for me, it's just I hold on to them and try to find this meaning and purpose for them. And it's this never-ending loop. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's hard to explain to people that haven't gone through it because they're like, it's just a thought. I'm like, but in my head, it's this like moral issue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something a lot of people who haven't grown up in an environment where like, your motivations and your every passing thought have like a spiritual significance. Yeah. Like I wasn't allowed to have a crush like, yes. because that's like cheating on my future spouse. Like it. So yeah. I get it on, on a visceral level. Like I understand the like 
because it was something I had to work through too. Like I'm just having a thought or having a feeling. It doesn't mean that I believe this or like that it says anything about my character. It's just like brains be doing shit. Right. Yeah. And just like a footnote for generally for everybody to be aware of, like one of the reasons like we talk about our upbringing as being cults is because they instill these like levels of self-doubt that create internal reinforcement of the high control system so that you are, you will become the cop that is policing yourself. Like you narking on your friend is not a big deal because you're taught to narc on yourself. Right. And, and so like, it's all part of that larger package that becomes this like religious high, high control dynamic that's abusive. Yeah. Just some light shit, you know. You know. Yeah. Easy, easy chill. It's fine. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about it all. And I just, I'm excited that this book is in the world. I think that just more voices talking about these experiences is productive so that everybody can find, you know, find that they're not alone and, Mm -hmm. you know, learn about new tools that might help them. I think it's just, it's a really valuable thing to have more of us talking about what we went through and how we waited out. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you guys. If people want to find you, where can they find you on the interwebs? Not in real life. Unless I'm trying to think of what, my, I mean, that. they can find <laughs> I mean, Target parking lot. We, Target no, parking yeah. lot, obviously. Obviously. Do I give the address? Because I know the address. <laughs> I, I'm looking at my Twitter handle because I don't know. It's Anna Gas Anna dash. Wait, what is the underscore one? Is it underscore? What is it underscore, called? Underscore. Bob and I'm a writer. Yeah, okay. It's just under- yeah. Underscore Gasmarian. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. We'll yeah, link to the book in the show notes. Um, comes out March 12th. So if you're listening to this before March 12th, give it a pre-order. Pre-order it. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. This was right, super, well, super great. Guys. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Be gay, do crime. Be gay, do crime. I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. Where two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Mm-hmm.